Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Titus chapter 2 as we continue our study of the spiritually sound church. I repeat things on purpose. I hope they stick with you, not only during this time that we are going through Titus 2, but beyond. For a church to be spiritually sound, there must be two things. What are they? Sound doctrine and sound living based upon that truth. Truth is not meant only to be believed, but lived. Truth is not only meant to be confessed, but applied. Sound doctrine is not simply to be contained within creeds and confessions, but fully functioning within churches and in the lives of believers, because the gospel is transformative. And so we've seen from Titus chapter 2 that for a church to be spiritually sound, the transformative work of the gospel must be evident in the lives of those who shepherd the souls of the congregation, namely its pastors. And therefore the Apostle Paul begins with Titus in verse 1. But as for you, Titus, in contrast to the sinful lives of those mentioned previously, he is to live differently in light of sound doctrine. And he is to, it says, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. That is consistent with sound doctrine. And so we saw that a spiritually sound and healthy church has pastors who live out sound doctrine and exhort others to do the same. But that's not enough. There must be a congregation who lives the truth, whose lives have been transformed by the truth. And therefore the Apostle Paul addresses older men in verse 2, older women in verse 3, who then encourage and teach the younger women in verses 4 and 5. And then he addresses the younger men in verses 6 through 8, among which category Titus found himself. And so we have seen that a spiritually sound church has men, older men and young men, who live out sound doctrine. And a spiritually sound church has women, older women and young women, who live out sound doctrine. And so having considered older men two weeks ago in verse 2, last week we began to consider the instruction to older women in verse 3. This morning we will continue to consider the instruction to older women and also see what God calls young women to be. So look again at Titus 2, verses 3 to 5, which addresses older women and Young women. Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. I've outlined verses 3 through 5 with these three headings. The older woman's character, the older woman's ministry, and the older woman's curriculum. You might say it's the young women's curriculum because it's what the older women are to teach the young women. Older women are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine. Those three phrases in verse 3 describe what the older woman is to be. 
This is her character. Then we see her ministry in these words. Teaching what is good, verse 4, so that they may encourage the young women. Her ministry is to other women and particularly to young women. And then we see the content of her teaching, the content of her encouragement to young women. These are some subjects, so to speak, that need to be addressed in order to encourage the younger generation of women to live out sound doctrine to the glory of God. This is her curriculum, so to speak. And in this curriculum, we see that young women, and in particular, young married women, and what they are to be in order to live out sound doctrine. It's fourfold. It covers her relationships, her character, her labor, and her motive. We see her primary relationships in verse 4, to love their husbands, to love their children. We see her character in verse 5 in these words, to be sensible, pure. Then we see her labor, her work in the home, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands. And then we see her motive, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Now last week we considered the older woman's character from verse 3. It's threefold here. Reverent in behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine. This is a woman who fears the Lord. She reveres the Lord and therefore her behavior is reverent. And we saw last time that this extends to her outward appearance Considering two parallel passages, 1 Timothy 2, verses 9 and 10, and 1 Peter 3, verses 3 and 4, we saw that she is to be modest in her dress and appearance, not flamboyant on the one hand and not indecent on the other. This reverent behavior extends to her tongue, her words, her speech. She's not a malicious gossip. She does not use her words to destroy, but to encourage and build up. And she's a temperate woman, a self-controlled woman, not enslaved to wine. Instead, she is a slave of Christ. She lives under the lordship of her Savior, Jesus Christ. So, having seen these three descriptions of her character, let's consider this morning her ministry and her curriculum that we might see what a young woman is to be as well. Consider first this morning the older woman's ministry. The kind of life described in verse 3 then yields a necessary and needed ministry to the younger women in the church. It is a teaching ministry. We see that in verse 3 in the words, teaching what is good. She is to be a teacher. Yes, women are to teach. Now, someone might cite the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy 2, verses 11 and 12, where he writes, A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. There we see that in the assembly of the whole body and in mixed company, A godly woman is to defer to the God-given role God has given to men to be teachers, preachers, and pastors. However, there is a context in which women can, should, and even must teach. 
She is to teach younger women. So again, Titus says, teaching what is good. And this is directed, according to verse 4, to young women in the church. Now, teaching what is good is translated from one Greek word, kala didaskalos. It's a compound word in Greek derived from two words, didaskalos, teacher, and kalos, which is the word for good. And put together, it means teaching what is good. Having moral goodness forged in her life by the Holy Spirit and by grace, her life teaches. Her life communicates something. Her life is a demonstration of what is good in God's sight. 1 Peter 3 verse 4 says that the godly woman is to cultivate and display, it says, quote, the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. Her character demonstrates what is precious in the sight of God. But just as her life was to be reverent, so also her speech must be reverent. Just as her life is to be an example and to teach, she also must speak in order to teach, to impart truth. And so having studied the Word of God and applied the Scriptures to her own life, the godly older woman is then to be able to teach what is good to other women by her life and by her words. So the older woman is to have a teaching ministry in the church. To whom? To women. That is a ministry of women to women, specifically here, older women to young women. And so verse 4 says, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children. So the focus of the older woman in her teaching what is good is directed toward the young women, that they too may live out sound doctrine. And as she teaches what is good, she then encourages the young women to do the same, to pursue godliness, to be reverent in their behavior, and to do certain things that God has called them to do and to be. Now the word here in verse 4, encourage, that's how it's translated in the New American Standard. It's translated variously, depending on your translation. And that's usually an indication that there's no one English word that captures all of the nuances of it. Therefore, in the English Standard Version, it says, and so train the young women. The King James Version says that they may teach the young women. Or the New King James, that they admonish the young women. So here we have encourage in the New American Standard, and then train, teach, and admonish. The word is sophronizo. It means to bring someone to be self-controlled, to to be sensible, and hence to train them in a life that is measured and controlled here by God Himself and the Holy Spirit. One lexicon says it means this, to instruct in prudence or behavior that is becoming and shows good judgment. And so she, having lived this life that is reverent in behavior and having been forged in holiness, by the work of God and the Word of God. She now is to encourage and train and instruct and admonish the young women to do the same. 
So let me just pause a minute and ask this question of those of you who are older women. Are you able to do this? Can you have a credible teaching ministry to young women in the church? For this is what God calls you to do. What qualifies an older woman to teach what is good and encourage them in the things that are listed here? It's not that you're just older. That's not what the qualification is. For being older does not necessarily mean that you have the character and the knowledge of Scripture to be able to instruct others. It's that you are a godly older woman whose doctrine and matching life will allow for this kind of encouraging ministry in the lives of the younger generation. I just said earlier, having studied the Word of God and applied the Scriptures to her life, then the godly older woman is able to teach what is good to other women by her life and by her words. And so she's studied the Word of God. She's applied it to her own life. And therefore, there's been godliness forged in her life by the Word and the Spirit. So women, to fill this God-given role, you must have two things. You must have knowledge and you must have wisdom. These are prerequisites. First, you must have knowledge, for you can't impart what you don't know. You can't teach what you don't know. Do you know what is good in God's sight? If you're to teach what is good, how do you know and how do you define what is good? Where do you find what is good in God's sight? Well, obviously, the answer is in the Word of God, the Bible. For all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And so if you're to be qualified, older women, to do this and to help build the spiritual soundness of the church by encouraging young women in these things. And you must be a woman of the word. To teach young women to love their husbands and to love their children, you need to know what the word of God says about love, about marriage, about marriage roles. You need to know what the word of God says about children, raising children, bringing them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. If you're going to encourage and instruct young women to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, then you need to know what the word sensible means. You need to know how being sensible fleshes out in the Christian life, and in particular as a Christian woman. And do you know what it means to be pure in the Bible? Philippians 4.8 says that, Whatever is pure, dwell on these things. What is pure according to God's word? And do you have wisdom that is pure? James 3 verse 17 says, The wisdom from above is first pure. Is your life characterized by this purity? 1 Peter 3 verse 2 speaks of a woman having chaste, and respectful behavior. The word translated chaste is the same word translated here as pure. Ladies, do you understand what the Bible teaches about sanctification? Can you explain what progressive sanctification in the life of the believer looks like? 
And I don't mean just explain it, but go to the Bible and show them. And then encourage them and admonish them in those things. Older women, if you're going to teach young women to be workers at home, do you know what that means? Have you been a worker at home? Or if you're to encourage them to be kind, do you know what that means? Are your relationships in your life characterized by kindness? Then it says being subject to their own husbands. Do you know what this means in the Bible? Do you see this as good? That this is God's good design for women in marriage? And do you joyfully submit to your husband? Does this characterize your own life? So there must be knowledge of these things from the Scripture. Not your opinion, not what you feel is good and right, but what God has said in His Word is good and right. There must be a thorough knowledge of the Word of God. But not only knowledge, there must be wisdom. Wisdom is knowledge applied to one's life. Not just knowing, but doing. Not just knowledge, but application. And so older women, can you do this? Do you have the knowledge of God's word to be able to encourage young women in these things? And does your life match sound doctrine? Have you applied it? Is there wisdom of life that's been forged through years of walking with Christ? If there's a deficiency of knowledge, truth comprehended and believed, then it will be the blind leading the blind. If there's not an application of that knowledge to one's life, truth applied, which yields wisdom, then there will be hypocrisy. And neither is what God is calling us to do. Now, God is calling older women to know the truth, to accurately then able to, be, to instruct in it, and to apply the truth to their own lives so that it wouldn't be from hypocrisy but from integrity. And so what we have here in verses 3 to 5 is a picture of a woman of godly character whose life has been shaped by the knowledge of the Word, whose life has been shaped by the application of the Word to her life over the years so that there can be this genuine, genuine and helpful training and encouraging of other women. So I ask again, older women, are you able to do this? Do you have the knowledge of the Word, a life forged by the Word, so that with integrity you can teach what is good to, older, to young women and with integrity encourage them with the kind of life that is mentioned here? Not too many weeks ago during Sunday school, I taught on James chapter 3, verse 1. It says, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur stricter judgment. It's a sobering verse. And here's an important application of this verse. Before you place yourself in this role of teaching other women, make sure you have a character forged by the truth. Make sure you know the Word of God so that you're encouraging other women in sound doctrine and how to live out that doctrine. Make sure your life matches the truth you're teaching. If it isn't true then of you, then be taught. Be a student of the Word, no matter your age. 
Prepare yourself by knowing the truth, following Christ, growing to maturity, so that then you can fulfill this important role in the body. Don't rush to be a teacher. Understand the weightiness of it, that it would incur a stricter judgment. But yet, pursue it by God's grace, to His glory, and for the biblical soundness of the church. Let me just say to you, young women, be careful. Seek out those women who are qualified to teach you these things. Not every woman is qualified to be your teacher in this way. Not everyone who offers a Bible study should be. So we need to understand it's not just being older that makes you qualified. It's the life with the character that's mentioned in verse 3 that then flows into a ministry to young women. So here we have a ministry of women teaching women. Now, why is this so important for the spiritual soundness of the church? Why is this so important? I would just answer that first by saying that young women need older women to teach them. They need those who have gone before to impart their wisdom from the Word of God. And so, young women, let me just say to you, do not despise this kind of ministry in your life. Do not be offended by it. Be humble and learn from old women. I should say older. <laughs> I knew I was going to slip and say that in a minute. It's been in my mind, but not in my lips yet. You know what I mean when I say that? You know, old is one thing. Older is even more so, right? So, so when I say old, it's less than older, right? There's old, older, and oldest. Okay, let's get back to Titus 2. Young women, if an older woman knows and lives the truth and is seeking to follow the Word of God as described here, she's not just trying to tell you what to do. She's not being an intruder meddling in your life. She's a friend, a dear friend who loves God and loves you and who wants you to flourish spiritually. So receive that. This is God's design. Young women, yes, your primary relationship is with your husband. But it's not your only relationship. Relationships, discipleship relationships with godly older women. Not just your peers, your age. But purposeful relationships with godly older women is necessary. It's a necessary part of your life for your spiritual growth and for the health of the whole church. So why is this ministry so important? Because young women need older women to teach them. They, they need those who've gone before to impart these truths to them. But secondly, it's vitally important for the spiritual soundness of the church. Again, we, we can't get away from what the theme is. We won't be a spiritually sound church without this kind of discipleship ministry within the church. Women teaching women. But there's a third reason, a very practical reason, why this is such an important ministry in the church. It is because pastors are limited in their specific and personal discipleship of women in the church. For propriety and purity, pastors must be careful in relationships with women. 
Your pastors do not meet with women alone. It's not that pastors do not and cannot minister to women in the church. We do so publicly. We do so privately in the presence of the husband or with our wives or with another godly woman. But this more personal discipleship most often comes from a husband to a wife and a woman to a woman. So it's a very important ministry in that way as well. And we as pastors can say, wholeheartedly thank you to you godly older women in the church who disciple, who care for, who love the young women in the church and seek to teach them and disciple them. So here we see the ministry of older women to younger women in the church. But now consider the curriculum. The content of what older women are to teach and encourage in the lives of young women. Again, verse 4, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God would not be dishonored. These words sound like a foreign language to the ears of those who've been conformed to the world with all its rebellion against God's created order and his moral law. And these words are becoming more and more foreign to us, strange to us to hear. The things taught here in Titus 2, 4, and 5 are under attack, and they have been for a long time. The adversary, the devil, would love to have young women in the church rebel against or at least ignore the things in these verses her primary relationships with her husband and children, her character, and her labor at home. Young women need to be taught how to be sensible, how to think biblically, how to think rightly about these areas of their lives. They need to be taught how to live out sound doctrine in these areas. Now, before we look at the details of the curriculum, so to speak, the content of what older women are to teach young women, Consider this. First, notice that living out sound doctrine for young women or a young woman revolves around her role as a wife and a mother. Therefore, this is her priority. These are her primary relationships. And this is honorable in the sight of God. This honors the Word of God, as we'll see in verse 5. But secondly, notice that marriage... Bearing and raising children is the norm and should be the desire of young women. It is the norm. Now, there are exceptions to this norm. There is the gift of singleness. There is what you might call providential singleness. We see that in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 7, the gift of singleness, when the Apostle Paul writes, Yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. He's speaking of his singleness and how he uses that for the kingdom of God. He was not married when he wrote those words. And he calls it a gift from God. And so we speak of the gift of singleness. It's not the norm But for some, it is a gift that God has given, and they are to use that singleness and the time that they have, not devoted to a husband and children, but 
to be wholly devoted to the Lord. In Matthew chapter 19, verses 11 and 12, Jesus said, Not all men can accept this statement, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who are born that way from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who are made eunuchs by men. But here's what he's speaking of that's a hard statement. And there are also eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of God. He who is able to accept this, let him accept it. In other words, they're eunuchs, they've chosen singleness, not what is normal in God's creation of marriage and bearing children, but, but they have chosen to not be married. And so there's a, a gift of singleness for the purpose of serving God for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. There's providential singleness, the death of a spouse. And there are also exceptions to married women having children. Sometimes you might call it providential barrenness, where God does not grant children to women who are married. But there are exceptions. And so we acknowledge that from the scripture. But Marriage, bearing and raising children, is the norm and should be the desire of young women, except for those exceptions. And since this is the will of God for the vast majority of women, it is specifically and often addressed in the Bible. And that's what we have here. This curriculum covers four areas. Her primary relationships, her character, her labor, and her motive. And this demonstrates what a godly young woman looks like. Now let's look at her relationships, her primary relationships. It says, to love their husbands, to love their children. If you're a young married woman, your priorities revolve around your husband and your children. Your life is centered around loving your husband, loving your children, and all that this means practically day by day. This is your calling. And what a high calling it is. This doesn't mean that you have no other relationships at church with other women. But practically, your relationship with your husband and with your children are the priority relationships that you must give attention to if you're to live out sound doctrine to the glory of God. And so the Apostle Paul says, older women are to teach and encourage young women to love their husbands. This is the primary relationship you have on earth. Why? Because marriage is a covenant relationship that was created by God for His glory. It is unique among all the relationships. And some of the reasons that God created marriage is for the purpose of assistance, companionship, and oneness. In Genesis 2.18, it says, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. The word helper means someone who aids and assists. And so the the godly woman is not doing her own thing. Her life is intertwined with her husband. They're in what God describes as a one flesh relationship. As Eve was created to be Adam's suitable helper, so every married woman is called to be the same. You are his helper. And in this unique relationship created by God, there is sweet companionship. It's not good for man to be alone. God said he will make a helper suitable to him, that is, comparable to him, corresponding to him. 
One who will be his companion, as it's called in Malachi 2, verse 14. One with whom there is a unique fellowship and oneness. So that the two become as one flesh, not just speaking of the physical union and intimacy of marriage, but the oneness of heart and life. And marriage is the primary earthly relationship. You leave father and mother and you're joined to your wife. And they become one flesh. So as I've said often, the primary relationship is not the parent-child relationship. Our children need to see their parents giving priority to that permanent relationship of marriage. And so young women, you are to give attention to loving your husbands. This is what it means to live out sound doctrine. When you do this, you're living out creation ordinances. So how do you do this? Well, let me just list some of them. You love your husband by maintaining your relationship with God and seeking holiness in the fear of the Lord. 1 John 5 verse 2 says, By this we know we love the children of God, when we love God and observe His commandments. How do you know that I love you? When I love God. The same is true in every relationship, and in particular, young women, you, you love your husbands by maintaining your relationship to God, loving Him. Because then you can be the wife that God has called you to be. You love him by encouraging him with his walk with Christ. You love him by keeping your relationship with your husband, the primary earthly relationship, not your children, not your parents, not other Christian women. Martha Peace said in The Excellent Wife, work as hard or harder being a good friend to your husband as you work at being a friend to your girlfriends. How do you love your husband? By keeping your relationship with your husband as an exclusive relationship, not being flirtatious, not allowing yourself to get into close and intimate relationships with other men. By dressing modestly, being chaste in all your dress and behavior. You love him by being his helper, supporting him, submitting to him as a spiritual head of the home. By respecting him, by not speaking against him or tearing him down to others. You love him by giving attention to the physical intimacy of that one flesh relationship. By giving attention to being a worker at home, maintaining things in an orderly manner. You love him by caring for the children, disciplining them consistently during the day when he's not at home. You love him by using your time wisely These are just some of the ways. And so examine your role or what your your role is in the marriage relationship and how you're to love your husband and, and really ask him, how can I love you more, biblically speaking? But then he says, love your children. How do you do that? Well, by seeing them as a gift of God. Children are a gift of the Lord, Psalm 127, verse 3. And then demonstrating this by what you say to them and how you act toward them. You love your children by disciplining them biblically and consistently, by maintaining a structured home and orderly schedule, by taking care of their physical needs, but also giving them, giving attention to their spiritual needs. 
You love your children by giving them your time, seeing that you don't waste time, by turning off the television, getting off the internet and social media, and giving attention to what is primary. Sometimes you love your children by saying no to too many activities outside the home that take you away from all the things that I've mentioned. And so what you do is the older women, you say, well, those are just some things. Listen, older women can tell you, here's how you do it. <laughs> Let me show you from the scriptures. These are the young woman's primary relationships. If she is to live in light of sound doctrine, she must make these the primary relationships in her life. And so seeing her primary relationships, we then see her character. Older women are to encourage the younger women, verse 5, to be sensible, pure. And these are related. Sensible, again, means to have a sound mind, to be sound thinking, sober-minded, so as to have self-control. And again, it's used as a characteristic of elders in Titus 1 verse 8, older men in Titus 2 2, younger men in Titus 2 verse 5. It's spoken of in verse 12 of every Christian, we're all to live sensibly, righteously, and godly. So you see how being sensible and pure go together. Here's a woman who thinks clearly. She, she's mentally sharp. She's not easily swayed from God's word. She, she sees worldliness and she flees from it. She's not like the women spoken of in 2 Timothy 3 verse 6. Weak women weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses. Young women, be sensible. Be of sound judgment. Think biblically. And that's coupled with the word pure. Morally pure, chaste, without moral defect. This is what we will be one day, 1 John 3, verse 3, completely and holy. We will be pure even as He is pure. But until that time, we're growing in sanctification. And so, young women, this world will tempt you with impurity in how you dress, your speech, your behavior. But you're not to be like the sensual, adulterous woman. You're to be the exact opposite, chaste and pure. And this means you don't entertain yourself with godless things of the world, with so-called love stories or anything else that has these sexual, sexually immoral overtones. Instead, you're, you're being pure in your behavior. Remember, charm is deceitful and beauty is vain. But a woman who fears the Lord will be praised. She's sensible and she's pure. This is her character. She's a wise and holy Christian, sensible and pure. But then you see her labor. She's diligent in working. And she's kind. And she's a submissive wife. We see that in verse 5. Workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands. Again, we have translated one Greek word into several words, a phrase, workers at home. The, the one Greek word means to be working at home, to be a homemaker. It's, it's the idea that your responsibilities are primarily related to the family. They are domestic in nature. Speaking of younger widows in 1 Timothy 5, verses 13 and 14, listen to this. It says, at the same time, they also learn to be idle. Speaking of those who are widows but not using their time 
rightly. It's they go around from house to house and not merely idle, but also gossips and busybodies take t- are talking about things not appropriate to mention. So again, they're being malicious gossips. That's not what they're to be. So he says, therefore, I want younger widows to get married, bear children, keep house, and give the enemy no occasion for reproach. Now, I want you to focus on that phrase, keep house. Bad translation. Who am I? I'm no Greek scholar to say that. Well, keep house gives the idea that you're, just, you're a housekeeper. You're, you're a maid. You just make sure the house is tidy. The interesting thing about the word there, that as Paul says to younger women, instead of being busybodies and malicious gossips, they're to get married, bear children, and then be this. What does it mean? It's not just keeping the house. It's, again, a compound word in Greek that puts two words together that has to do with with, uh, organizing, managing, being a steward of something. So it's not just keep house just doesn't get the full weight of it. It's the idea that you're to be a manager of one's household. You're to be busy at home, diligent in these things of the home. So it's not just keep house. The house is clean, you're doing your job. No, you're a manager of this domain called home. In Titus here, chapter 2, it says a worker at home. You're, You're diligent in your labor in the things related to your home. Remember, you're loving your husband. You're loving your children. And it doesn't mean just to stay at home. It doesn't mean being an occupant at home. You're not just to be at home, but you're to be productive at home. Sitting around idle, neglecting the practical ways you're to love your husband, spending time in gossip, useless talk is not what this phrase is talking about. Listen to Proverbs 31, verse 27. This explains what it means to be a worker at home, to be a manager of one's household. It says, she looks well to the ways of her household. She does not eat the bread of idleness. She's looking to the ways of her household. You know, the the home, the household is a very complex thing, especially in the context here when you think of you're married, there's a husband, there's a home, there is a physical domain, but there are the relationships there, there are children, and all the things that are involved biblically with bringing up children practically and spiritually. And it means here that the woman's main concern is for those things. These are her, it's not just her primary relationships, but her primary duties. It's a picture of a woman who fulfills God's design for her life by diligently working at home, giving attention to those responsibilities, caring for her husband and her children. She cares for her home, her children. She provides meals. She provides clothing. She's frugal. She's well organized. Now, if you think about any other organization, let's just call it, let's just think about this church. There are people who need to be workers at church in various ways. It doesn't just happen. There's a lot of work and labor involved in a local church. You take even a small business, and some of you are owners of small businesses, and you run them, you understand all the complexities of what that means. Or you didn't think of some other company, you know, you need people to give attention to, to manage those things. It takes a lot of work. Why is it that we think the home doesn't require much? 
mean, this is God's design. This is God's creation. And there are relationships that glorify him or dishonor him. And there's so much. There's the physical domain, but the relationships and all the things that go along with it. It's no small thing to manage your home, to be a worker at home. But yet this is so looked down upon today in our culture. It's not the glamorous role. It's seen as unimportant. But this takes selfless love for God and for one's family. Again, the world belittles this. And one of the reasons is that, or one of the reasons why the world is in such disarray is that women have forsaken this God-ordained role. But women, listen, nothing could be more honorable and precious in the sight of God than for you to fulfill the role and responsibilities he's given you in the home. Let no one look down on your God-given role. Be content with that high calling and find joy in God's design for your, for your wife. So when someone says, should a woman work? I say, absolutely. She's to be a laborer, work hard, a manager at home. Someone says, well, can I work outside the home? I usually then say, what do you mean work outside the home? Do you mean a career? They say, well, yeah, I mean a career. Well, what do you mean by a career? What is a career? If you look up the word career, you find definitions like this. A profession for which one, one trains and which is undertaken as a permanent calling. It's a long pursuit when you pursue a career. You're, you're looking for a long haul pursuit of something. And it implies certain priorities have been made. And so I usually say to folks who ask that question, if that's what you mean by career, career mindedness is not biblical, but worldly thinking. Is it really worth it to go pursue this long permanent pursuit of a career and neglect your family and God's calling for your life? I think of what Paul said when he is speaking of his own ministry. He said, we prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. He's just assuming what should be the case in God's creation and the natural desire of women who are married with children. They, they should want to tenderly care for their own children. <laughs> it's just understood that I have children and therefore they're mine and I'm to care for them and nurture them. They're my own, not to give them to someone else. There's so much that is entailed in this. And we need our thinking right. Let me just say to you men, men, labor, work, work hard, provide for your families so that your wives can fulfill their role. And especially young couples, but all couples, but especially young couples, as you Think about decisions that you're making. They're going to affect you long term. Make financial decisions so that you can live off of one income. It's hard. I understand that. Our world's not set up that way. Our world is set up with wages so that you need two incomes. Unless you're to make decisions, sometimes that aren't going to be as desirable, 
so that those biblical roles can be fulfilled. It brings my mind back to the days of living in a 550 square foot mobile home that when it rained, because it was a 1965 mobile home, same age as my wife, that it, it would drip. The, and it had the crank out windows that were broken and there just wasn't any reason to try to fix them. And when there was a stiff wind, they'd blow open. But it was good. $200 a month, $80 a month lot fee, it was good in those days of seminary to do that so that my wife could fulfill her biblical roles. My two older children, our two older children, Luke and Bethany, were born and lived in that 550 square foot, two bedroom mobile home. They were 12 and a half months apart, so we needed two cribs. I had to tear out part of the closet to get the two cribs in that one place. And all the things at the time that I thought, oh, about that mobile home, I look back and think, thank God for his provision. In that way, decisions were made so that we could fulfill the God-given roles he had given to us. So men, make financial decisions so that your wife can be what God has called her to be here. Don't get sucked up into the materialism of the world. Again, we understand it's difficult, but make wise decisions. And so she's to be this worker at home, a laborer, for the glory of God in her home. And then it says kind. It may seem unrelated, but, but she's diligent in this labor and it comes from kindness. I, I think of Acts 9 verse 36. It speaks of a, a disciple named Tabitha. And here's how it describes her. This woman was abounding with deeds of kindness and charity, which she continually did. Flowing from her life was kindness and charity. Again, describing a woman who's now a widow, looking back at her life in 1 Timothy 5 verse 10, it says, having a reputation for good works. So here's a woman, yes, she's laboring at home, but not just at home. She's, this kindness is exhibited in her ministry to her family, but also outside of her home. She has a reputation for good work. She's filled with deeds of kindness and charity. And so her labor extends to helping others as well. And much of this originates from her home. The home becomes a place of ministry. And so her life is filled with acts of kindness. And this attention to the home comes full circle to the primary relationship of married women. When Paul writes, being subject to their own husbands. All of her responsibilities under her husband's headship, she's not doing her own thing. But again, these two in this one flesh relationship, equal in dignity and value before God, but with differing roles, come together, and now she submits herself to her husband. We spent 14 weeks on a call for men to be godly, a man who is now loving his wife as God has called her to be. And what a beautiful picture this is. By the way, wives, biblical submission is willingly, voluntarily, respectfully, and joyfully placing yourself under the God-given authority of your husband for the glory of God. It's a choice you make because you understand this is God's created order. 
As one commentator said, she, speaking of a Christian wife, will not begin to think that her equality in spiritual standing before God entitles her to forget about the fact that in his sovereign wisdom, God made the human pair in such a manner that it is natural for the husband to lead and for the wife to follow. The tendency to follow was embedded in Eve's very soul as she came forth from the hand of the Creator. Hence, any attempt to reverse this order is displeasing to God. So the godly, submissive wife desires for God's glory in creation, and specifically God's creation in marriage, to be put on display. See, this is living out sound doctrine. This is rooted even in creation ordinances from the beginning, before sin. Those doctrines come to bear upon our relationships, our homes, our roles. This is where we're convinced that this is the truth of what God has created, and then we live it out, even when we're swimming upstream to all that the world values. And therefore, verse 5 ends with her motive. Her motive is to honor God and His Word. It says it this way, so that the Word of God will not be dishonored. The young woman pictured in these verses is ultimately subject to God and His Word. Her motive is that God and His Word would not be dishonored by her life. To put it positively, she wants her life to adorn the gospel, bring honor and praise and worship to her Savior and Lord. She wants her life to be a testimony of the truth of God's Word. In conclusion, this really gets to the heart of what characterizes all believers who are spiritually sound and characterizes all churches that are spiritually sound. A desire for God to be honored and glorified. This is where we see sound doctrine, the truth, the truth of the gospel, making its mark. In salvation, we're changed from lovers of self to lovers of God. From going our own way to doing the will of God. From exalting self to exalting God. To now being those who say, hallowed be His name. I want God to be honored. I want His word to be honored. And so the spiritually sound church is filled with men and women, young and old, who are joined with this ultimate goal. The glory of God in the home, in the church, and in the world. Amen? Amen. Let's bow our heads together in prayer. Father, I pray for the women in our church, and I thank you for them. I thank you for your mercy and grace in their lives and saving them. And Father, I thank you for your grace and power in them and transforming them by the truth of your word. Lord, we pray for the older women in our church that they indeed would be reverent in their behavior not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine. I pray that their lives would be a picture of what is good and holy in your sight, so that they may teach and encourage the young women in our church to do the same. Father, I pray for all the women in our church, and I pray especially for the young women, or those who have children and even young children, Lord, I pray that you would 
Give them compassion and love for their husbands and for their children. I thank you for the role that you have given to them to strengthen their homes by loving their husbands and their children. Father, I pray that they would have clear biblical thinking that would lead to a purity of life. I pray that they would give their attention to being laborers at home. Lord, that kindness would be what marks their home and their relationships in the home and even outside the home. And that from their home, there would be ministry that would take place. And Lord, I pray that their relationship with their husbands would be one of willful, joyful, voluntary submission to their, wife, to their husbands, to your glory. And all this will be done so that, Lord, your design in creation, your moral will would be glorified, that your word would not be dishonored among us. And even when all these things seem so strange to the world and even are detested by the world, Lord, I pray that we would treasure these things and find joy and delight in doing your will. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.